Father, you are our great God, and we sing worship to you. We praise you. Let's start over. Father, you are our great God, and we praise you. We worship you. We sing hallelujah to our great God, and we come to you humbly, seeking your forgiveness, seeking your strength, asking that the Holy Spirit would move in us, open our eyes to the truths of this passage. Teach us today, Lord, about the judgment, uh, your perfect judgment and your perfect mercy. I pray all of us would gain in our understanding of you. I pray that we would gain in our passion and obedience of you and your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We are so privileged today to come again to worship. I need to say something here at the top. I am so glad and so blessed to be a part of this church, Makakilo Baptist Church. We, the pastors, have tried our best to contact you and reach out to folks and find out, and please let us know if we've not been able to, to touch base with you. We just want to make sure everything's okay. But uh, what's amazed me is, is not just the fact that other than a handful of folks who've, who've had a little bit of illness, uh, most of you are doing great, not just physically, but spiritually. And it's pretty amazing to see what God has done even through this hard time. We've had a couple of babies born. We've had people reach new heights in terms of their spiritual growth, in terms of their times with the Lord in the morning, and had a number of people ask about church membership. It's just pretty amazing that God continues to grow His kingdom in spite of all that's happening around us. And it just tells me not just how great God is, but how great God's work is in us. And, uh, you know, times like this, it really gives you a measure of the kind of church that you're in. And it's just amazing to me. We have not skipped a beat in terms of uh, those of you being involved and being excited and giving and being a part. It's just been absolutely amazing to watch. Before us today are 11 verses, Matthew 11, verses 20 to 30, 11 verses there. And they describe, at first, a, a people who reject reject Christ, reject the gospel message, in spite of all the miracles and things that had been done for them. These are people that lived in cities where Jesus ministered, and these people rejected Christ. The second is really not a group. The second section of this passage is an appeal to come to Christ. And the first part, you can think of it as Christ vindicating God's righteous judgment. The second part, Jesus is calling us to enjoy God's mercy. He's offering His mercy. And perhaps this is something that most of us need to hear today, a a stern warning, a stern reminder of the reality of the inevitable judgment of God, and also a wonderful invitation to humble yourself to fall on your knees, to be broken, and to follow Christ, to enjoy the beauty of discipleship. Is being a Christian hard? Are these these difficult times? Are there difficulties in Christianity? You bet there are, but lived in submission to Christ. In fact, I would argue the more we submit to Christ, the more we look to Christ, it becomes even a blessing to suffer the same difficulties, to join in His sufferings. So let me read these verses. You can follow along there. Verses 20 to 30, the second, or actually the last third of uh, Matthew chapter 11, or last fourth of Matthew chapter 11. Let's, Let's read these together. 
Matthew eleven twenty. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious, gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest from your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the very Word of God. Now, before we jump into our study of this passage, there is an important concept that I want us to cover, and it has to do with the nature of God's character traits, His characteristics, the, the characteristics that we attribute to Him. To help us think about the attributes of God, theologians have distinguished between the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. The incommunicable attributes of God are, are characteristics of God that are not shared with humanity. We do not share in any way these attributes with God, nor does God demand these attributes of us. For instance, theologians talk about God's aseity, which is a fancy word that means His total independence. We don't share that with Him. We are dependent on one another and, most importantly, on God. So, aseity is an incommunicable attribute. His transcendence, the fact that He is above all and over all, even time and space. His sovereignty, the fact that He's in control of all things. His omnipotence, He's all-powerful. His omniscience, He knows everything. His omnipresence, He is everywhere. These are His incommunicable attributes, attributes that we do not share with Him, nor does He demand them of us. And God never says, thou shalt be omnipotent. Why? Because it's impossible. Impossible because this is an incommunicable attribute of God. It's not shared with us, and He does not demand it of us. Communicable attributes, on the other hand, are those attributes that are characteristics of God that can be shared with the human race. Rationality, reasoning, thoughtfulness, love, kindness, even things like justice and righteous wrath, judgment, Wisdom, discernment, 
He's, of course, our perfect in God, and we are not yet perfect. These are perfect in God and imperfect in us, but in some way we can display these attributes, and God does demand these things of us. And so these are called the communicable attributes of God. Now, there is one attribute of God that is incommunicable, but it's on display through His communicable attributes. And so because of that, on top of uh, all these incommunicable attributes that God does not demand of us, this is the one incommunicable attribute that He does demand of us because it is realized in these other attributes, these communicable attributes, and that is God's holiness. Holy, basically, at its core, means separate, entirely different, totally of a different sort, a different kind, where we get the idea of holy days or holidays. These are days that are different. They are separate. They are set apart. They are unique. They are special. In the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament as well, you think about the bread and cup and some other things, there are things that were consecrated. They were set aside for a holy purpose separated for God's special purpose. Take off your shoes, Moses. The ground you are standing on is what? Holy ground. The Ark of the Covenant was holy to the Lord. Certain sacrifices, holy to God. What makes those things holy? Here it is. It is the touch of God. God makes those things holy. Holy. And the beautiful story of redemption is that God has made a people holy to Himself. He touches the hearts of His elect. He empowers repentance and faith, and, and through that transaction, He justifies them. He makes them holy like Himself. And that doesn't mean they're instantly sinless or instantly fully holy like God is holy. We could never become that. But it come, becomes possible finally to do what is right, to do what is righteous in the sight of God, because we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so God commands us, be holy as I am holy. Let all these attributes, these attributes, these communicable attributes be defined by the holiness of God. Well, God's holiness means those communicable attributes are absolutely perfect, flawless, incomprehensible in some ways to our finite minds. God's love, for instance, is absolutely perfect. It's full. It's eternal. There's not one moment that God's love is not fully and perfectly realized. God's love is never suspended. It is never held off. It is never in quarantine. You tired of that word yet? It is never on hiatus. The same is true about Another communicable attribute, and that is God's wisdom flowing from His holiness. God is wise and always wise, and He's he's never unwise. He never sets it aside for a moment. Another attribute, because God is holy, totally perfect and separate, infinitely special, He is and will always be perfectly true in His judgment. There's not one error. There's not one failure in His judgment. He is holy, therefore in wisdom, in love, in judgment, He's infinitely perfect. You know, this relates to His justice. And this is hard for us to imagine, but there's not one moment, not one second, not one millisecond, not one micro or nanosecond that God ceases to be perfectly just 
He is a God of infinitely perfect judgment. And he is constantly and perfectly executing that judgment at all times. I know this is hard to think of because sometimes you look around and say, when will there be justice? But the truth is, is that God being God is always perfectly, 100% just and executes perfect judgment. Like I said, this is where people stumble. Even good Christians stumble. We have a hard time, uh, excuse me, we don't have a hard time ascribing some of those incommunicable attributes to Him in, in perfection and in, in eternity. He always is, is omnipotent. He's always omnipresent, and it's easy for us to attribute that. But when it comes to the, the communicable attributes, the attributes we know and experience, it's hard for us to imagine that God could actually have those and be displaying those and executing those perfectly all the time at the same time. We, we think, for instance, in order for God to, to really love, He has to suspend judgment. Or for God to show mercy, he has to, he has to sort of pull back His justice. We think God has to hit pause on one part of His characteristics in order to execute perfectly another part of His characteristics. This is why a lot of people look at the Bible and say, well, the Old Testament is the testament of God's wrath and judgment. He is this mean, foreboding God. He's distant. But in the New Testament, oh, He's a God of love. He shows mercy, not justice and judgment. Now, if that's what you think, I would just say to you, you need to pick up your Bible and read it. Some of the most beautiful passages of God's love are found in the Old Testament. Some of the scariest judgments of God are displayed in high definition in the New Testament. In fact, look no further than our text today. Jesus cries out, woe to you, woe to you. And by the way, the word woe is the opposite, the linguistic opposite of a beatitude, of blessing. It is a curse. Curse be upon you. You are cursed. That's what he's saying. These are hard words. I think we struggle with this idea that God is always perfectly just and always perfectly loving or always perfectly showing judgment, proper judgment, and always being merciful at the same time. I think we struggle with this idea that God can do both at all times and in all ways. I think we struggle with this for several reasons. One is because we've almost always have to, for us, like I said earlier, we have to suspend one to display another. Now, hopefully we can grow in that, but particularly when if you're raising kids, a lot oftentimes to show mercy, you have to suspend justice. It's hard for us to imagine that Mercy and judgment can exist, can coexist. Another reason we struggle with this is because we want to see both in full display right now, right? It's hard for us to see the justice of God against wrongdoing, and so we cry out for justice. We cry out for God's judgment. It's hard for us maybe to see God's mercy, maybe even in these times where there's this virus and these terrible things happening to even young people now and it's hard for us to see the mercy of God, and so we cry out for mercy as though the mercy doesn't exist or is not being executed at that time. But the truth is God's judgment and God's mercy are being ex executed perfectly at all times. Finally, I think we struggle with this idea that God is executing both His perfect judgment and His perfect mercy at the same time 
is because we forget the gospel. We simply forget the gospel. The gospel is not a story of God suspending His justice and sort of ignoring or sweeping under the rug a bunch of sin, pretending it never happened. Maybe He looks at us and He just loves us so much, He just says, okay, I'm not going to punish you for this one. You're just so cute, I can't stand to to execute justice. I'm just going to give you mercy. In other words, His mercy comes at the expense of justice. No way. Let me tell you something. That, That mercy is weak, that kind of mercy I just described. It cost Him nothing. And because it costs them nothing, there is no justice. That is a mercy that is a weak mercy, that is a corrupted mercy. Likewise, if there's justice, if you diminish the, the mercy for justice, it's a, it's a diminished justice as well. How is God loving if He doesn't absolutely, perfectly deal with all evil? In order to be a just God, He has to deal with all of it. He has to deal in judgment and in mercy all the time perfectly. And all these scenarios that people give and preachers even put out that, you know, they just sort of preach the the mercy side and never talk about the justice side, if you do this, you, you are truncating the gospel. And let me tell you something, a truncated gospel is not just less information, it is a corruption of the holiness of God. Don't believe those gospels for one minute, it's not a gospel at all. Run from preachers who defy the holiness of God by just ignoring and never speaking of the fullness of God's holiness, both in His justice and His mercy. It diminishes His mercy to never talk about God's justice. The gospel begins with justice. It begins with the judgment of God. It begins with the bad news that you are dead in sin in your trespasses. You are under the judgment of God. The wrath of God is aimed at you. That's when the good news, the mercy of God, becomes real, and it becomes good news because God, through Christ on the cross, maintained both His judgment for your sin as well as His mercy. Well, if you haven't figured out already, these two paragraphs are about God's perfect judgment and about God's perfect mercy. Two paragraphs, two points for you this morning, and it's all on this theme of God's justice or judgment and His mercy or His love and kindness. In fact, what I thought as I put together the message today and for today, I, I, I thought, you know, what, what's the fundamental point that Jesus and subsequently Matthew, what, what's the bullet point they're wanting to teach us in these two paragraphs? So let me give you these points. First of all, fear God's righteous judgment. I believe people were to hear Jesus giving those woes, and I believe they're supposed to fear the righteous judgment of God. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. This must have been shocking to hear these words of Jesus. You, he's, he's, conclu- he's continuing that idea of woe, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you're going to be cursed as well. 
He even compares them to Sodom, Sodom being better off than them. It's going to be worse for you guys. The cities where I've done the most of my miracles, done the most of my preaching, it's going to be worse for you guys than it will be for Sodom, which we all know Sodom. That's the city of the prototypical sin city, right? There's an actual sin named after Sodom. Sodom and Sidon and Tyre, they're known for their torture and death. These, church, these cities were known through the centuries as being some of the worst cities in terms of sin and morality of all of time. And, and Jesus is saying, woe to you. And these are the cities where he was preaching, woe to you. It's going to be worse for you than these horrible cities, the most horrible cities in human history. Absolutely incredible, shocking amount of judgment. Well, there are several things that this passage, this first paragraph tells us about God's judgments. Maybe you want to write them down. Number one, or A, God's judgment is always right. There is a sense here that Jesus is pointing to the logic, the, the reasoning of God's judgment. Did you notice this? The, inhabitant, the inhabitants of, of Sodom and Tyre and, and Sidon, as grotesque and violent as their sins were, it was done, they were done in a level of ignorance. Yes, not complete ignorance. All humans have general revelation. But it was done in far more ignorance than those of the inhabitants of Capernaum and Tyre and Sidon. They, back in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, they did not have the Son of God preaching the Word to them, working miracles. Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida, they did have the Son of God working magnificent miracles, and yet they still reject Him. You see the reasoning. they This is not an unrighteous judgment is what Jesus is saying. This is not something that's unfair or not right. It's it's truly right. This is a righteous judgment. Justice is coming for Chorazin, Bethsaida, and even more sadly, Capernaum, where Jesus had his initial ministry. The justice of God is held in store for them. Judgment will be poured out for them. And Christ is saying this judgment is truly vindicated. It's right. It's perfect judgment. And friends, let me tell you, if you are watching this worship service, if you sit through this worship service, or if you're a part of our church and have a lot of people fooled into thinking you're a Christian, even if you have religious experiences in the past, if you've not truly repented of your sin, and yet you've heard gospel preached week in and week out, you've sat through many sermons, maybe yawning, rolling your eyes, sleeping, even if you have some sort of religious appreciation, if you've never truly repented of your sin, your judgment will be no different than that of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, which will be worse than Sodom, worse than Tyre, worse than Sidon. This brings us to this second truth I mentioned already, but the second truth about God's judgment, B, God's judgment is always fair. That is to say, there are levels of judgment, levels of punishment, degrees, sometimes people say, of punishment in hell. This is a, a pretty frightening revelation. One of the commentators I said, uh, read said something like this, hell is not set on one particular temperature. It's hotter for those who have been exposed to more and more truth of the gospel. 
Yes, there, it will be pain, it will be suffering for those who die in ignorance, rejecting God, rejecting general revelation. They sin against that revelation that God gave them. But there are millions, perhaps millions upon millions, who will suffer far greater punishment in eternal hell because they sat through services just like this and never repented. Outside of Satan and his angels, they will be punished the worst in hell. There's a fairness here. Not everybody is punished the same. Letter C, God's judgment is always sure. I want you to notice verse 22, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for, do, than for you. Then verse 24, I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, I want you to note this. Jesus does not speak of the day of judgment ironically or figuratively or tongue-in-cheek or by appropriation, or just accommodating the listeners because they think that's what's going to happen. No, clearly as you read this, Jesus believes in this final judgment. It is sure. It is happening. And if you're not covered with the righteousness of Christ and thus producing spirit-driven works, you'll be banished to hell. Hades here, it mentions same thing. You don't have to a lot of nuances there. We don't have to go into all the nuances. It's this torturous, fiery eternity for those who do not believe. Well, this brings me to a final truth here. One of the commentators I read, uh, written by Jim Boyce, pointed this out, and this is going to mess up all of you uh, OCD people. D, the worst sin is a sin of unbelief. I know you wanted me to say God's judgment is, but I have to say this, the worst judgment, the worst sin is a sin of unbelief. Here are these other cities renowned for their sexual sin, renowned for their murder, renowned for their hurt and harm of human beings, and Jesus says, it will be better for them than for you. Why? Because of unbelief. There will be murderers in heaven. There will be polygamists, homosexuals, adulterers, abusers. If they believe and repent, they will be in heaven. But I tell you, who won't be in heaven? Unbelievers. They won't be there. Not one. Not one unbeliever will sneak into heaven. Not one unbeliever will sneak into heaven. This is why I entitled this point, Fear God's Righteous Judgment. I, I believe we are supposed to tremble before this amazing, powerful, horrifying judgment. Here's some New Testament for you. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10 has been talking about those who have tasted and seen and been a part of church and been around a lot of church, and he says this, how much worse punishment, this is verse 29 of Hebrews 10, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the ones who have trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? In other words, they hear it all, and they just go on. No faith, no repentance. For we know him, the author of Hebrews goes on, vengeance, who said, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
I believe Jesus, and again, subsequently Matthew, struck fear in the hearts of their audience. Oh, I'm sure some people responded to Jesus' sermon there that day, listening to Him preach all this. Some people may have blown it off. That's just another one of Jesus' hellfire brimstone sermons. I just sort of shut off when He preaches like this. But others believed. Others repented of their sin. Others followed Jesus. They came to Him, and they entered into everlasting rest. Well, that's what this next paragraph is all about. Look at verse 25, Matthew 11. Here in the midst of all this talk about God's perfect judgment, His completely, uh, complete inexorable judgment that is coming at the same time, at that time, verse 25 says, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And here's the invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Point number two, come to Jesus, and He will give you mercy. Now, just like the judgment of God, let me give you some points about God's mercy. First of all, God's mercy is reserved for those who are humble. God's mercy is reserved for those who are humble. In verse 25 there, uh, I want you to notice one of the most important truths that undergirds anyone's salvation, and that is the sovereignty of God. All people have general revelation, that is, nature and how God designs us. Many people even have special re- revelation, the, the truths of the Bible, if not even a Bible itself. They have the truths of the Bible. They have had access. They've heard these things. But in the end, the Holy Spirit still has to enlighten spiritual eyes. He has to give spiritual life to the spiritually dead. Otherwise, even that special revelation of the gospel is meaningless to them. God's sovereignty in salvation is a foundation for for doctrines that we read about, Bible words like predestination, election, effectual calling, eternal security. We have none of those without God's sovereignty in salvation. And clearly here, Jesus believes that God is the one who is first and, final, first and the final decision-maker in regard to saving souls. God has chosen. He's hidden the truth from some and revealed it to others, Jesus says. He has complete sovereign control in salvation. And Jesus says, all these folks have been handed to me by the Father. And clearly, this is the idea that anyone who follows Jesus has been a gift from God to Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He says in verse 39 there in John 6, He will lose none of whom the Father gives to Him. And he goes on to say, These are the people that believe in Him. They are the ones who have, verse 41, eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus is using similar language in this sermon here 
He believes in the sovereignty of God, the doctrine of God's sovereignty when it comes to salvation. But it's very important to remember the doctrine of God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. Mysteriously, perhaps confoundingly for our little brains, we still have responsibility to do something, to repent, to have faith, to come to Jesus. We're called to use our wills in this way to turn to Christ, to follow Jesus, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross. Now, how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work seamlessly together is a mystery to us, but we can deny neither one. Both are in Scripture. Both are just as prominent as the other. And my feeling is that when you start to to neglect one and focus on the other, you do the Bible injustice. You do the doctrine of salvation injustice. Both of these are present in the Bible. Now, Jesus is very clear here. He believes this. He says, hey, God chooses to whom the gospel remains hidden and to whom he reveals the gospel. But, and here's the human responsibility, he says, you have hidden these things from the wise, but revealed them to what? Little children. The word there is really babies. And clearly Jesus is talking spiritually, not physically. He's not saying God only reveals the gospel message to infants. No, he's talking spiritual infants. He's talking about folks who have a certain spiritual self-consciousness of their total helplessness. They do not see themselves as wise. They do not see themselves as accomplished. They do not see themselves as bringing credentials that, that somehow get them in good with God. They see themselves as infants wallowing down on the ground in complete need, who have no credentials in terms of salvation. They are helpless babies. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the fundamental attitude of salvation. I mentioned a childlike faith last week. Again, that does not mean mindless or blind or stupid. That's childish faith. No, a childlike faith is a faith that says, Jesus, I come to you with nothing. I have no credentials. I have not accomplished anything that warrants merit or warrants eternal life a gift from you. I trust only by your Son that He has accomplished what I could never accomplish. God, have mercy on my soul. When you approach God like that, As babies, God indeed does have mercy on your soul. That's the baseline. That's the foundational attitude when you approach God for salvation. Those who receive God's mercy, Jesus says, are those who approach Him like babies. Something else about God's mercy I want you to see, B, God's mercy grants us relationship with none other than the Trinity. This is a phenomenal passage. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and 
anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. There again is the sovereignty of God and Jesus. But what's going on here? Jesus says, it makes it clear, there's this impenetrable triune relationship between God the Father. Later on, He'll talk about the Spirit. But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have this impenetrable, perfect love relationship with one another. And He says, no one is allowed in. No one knows the Father except for the Son. No one knows the Son except for the Father. This is an impenetrable relationship, but there's this beautiful, glorious, wonderful exception there. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Again, there's a sovereignty, but I think the beautiful, encouraging truth is that Jesus is getting at here is that we, by the actions of the Son, are permitted into this relationship. We get to have a relationship with the Almighty God. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is not pushing this. You don't become gods. You'll become a Mormon if you push that too hard. Jesus doesn't say you'll become gods. You'll join the Trinity. You'll be a part of the Trinity. He simply says we now have knowledge. We have intimate relationship with the Godhead. We're wrapped up in that wonderful love, that wonderful security, that, that wonderful blessed relationship the love that even binds the triune God together. What a wonderful truth. What's the practical application? This wonderful thought that the mercy of God takes us to that love. What's the practical reality? Verse 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, God's mercy gives us rest in Jesus. You come to Jesus, you find rest. Now, you notice Jesus doesn't say, you'll never have hardship. I'll heal you if you have enough faith. Now, the faith that he's talking about It's not faith in miracles. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It's trusting Him even when times get tough. Even when you're flailing around in the water, such as Peter, it's gazing upon Jesus and believing that He has your best, which is God's glory in mind. In Him, He says, your burden is easy. In Him, your burden is light. The word there, yoke, Y-O-K-E, not yoke, Y-O-L-K, like an egg yolk. Yolk is a wooden frame they put over working oxen when they're digging uh, troughs or perhaps turning a millstone. So this is not easy. A, a yoke comes upon you. You become, and in the words of Paul, you become a slave of Christ. But what you find in becoming a slave of Christ is that burden is nothing but a pure joy. It's a comfort. Maybe you don't find comfort in this life. Maybe you don't find comfort in your body. Maybe you don't find comfort in your, your wealth. But in spite of all those circumstances, in spite of all the hardship of this life, if you have taken upon the, the yoke of Christ and follow Him, you will find true joy. That burden is light. And it needs to dawn on your heart that God created humans to be worshipers of Him. He created us to worship Him. And as long as we're not doing that perfectly, life is hard. Things things are difficult. 
But if we are worshiping Him, no matter what comes our way, no matter even if we catch the coronavirus and die, even if these things happen to us, we can find great joy. In Him, you will find rest. Follow Him. Study Him. Study His gentle ways, His lowly spirit, and you will find rest. Follow Christ, and you'll find rest. In a day like today, we need to fill our minds and hearts with these things, with all the news and the arguments, and it just seems like you'd think that this world would bind together, that maybe political parties could get along for once, but no, it's worse than it's ever been. There's no rest, and it's not just politicians. I know we pick on them all the time. It's all of us, families, friends. There's constant difficulty. There's conspiracy theories. There's frustration. There's still abuse and horrifying things happening no rest. But if you come to Jesus in the midst of all this difficulty, you will find rest. I just have to say this. This time, it's been filled with trouble and turmoil. It's been awkward and weird, and and I long for the day we can all be together again. But I just have to say, just to be perfectly honest, I have had the most restful, sweet time. I've spent more time with the Lord, more time with my family. I've been forced, really, to take more time, all the urgent things on your calendar, which sometimes just dominate your life. It can, for weeks, you go on just operating on what is urgent. All those urgent things are taken away, and you, you're operating simply on trusting the Lord, doing your work, no distractions, no preoccupations. For most of us, maybe not all of us, but for most of us, this can be a wonderful time. We can come to Jesus with our burdens. We can come to Him with our hardships. We can come to Jesus, and we can find rest. Of course, this is most applicable for those of you who are not genuine believers. Maybe, again, you've had religious experiences. Maybe you've had some sort of religious things happen in your life. You have an appreciation, but you've never come to Jesus. You've, you've maybe even said words, maybe even repeated prayers, maybe even be dunked in the ocean as a baptism, as a sort of baptism. But you've not genuinely repented, had faith in Christ, and followed Christ. I love what Jesus says, learn from me. I've got these gentle and lowly ways. Look at me. Study my life. Follow me. A Christian is not a Christian just by saying a prayer or getting dunked in the ocean. A Christian is a Christian when he follows Christ. And maybe you've never done that. And maybe that explains the lack of rest and lack of peace in your heart. So I would just say to those of you who are not genuine believers, fear God's judgment and flee to Jesus. Run to Christ. Come to Christ for rest. All of us can see as we take our eyes off Christ during hard times, much, again, much like Peter, things get hard. We start to flail about. But when we study Christ and keep our eyes upon Christ, we find great rest. And the beautiful irony is when you take on the yoke of worship, you find that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We pray right now for those uh, believers who may have been struggling, maybe just needed a reminder to look back upon Jesus, to study Him, and to know Him, and to, to rest in Him, and to find that great, wonderful mercy and peace. Perhaps, Lord, this message also was for those who do not know Christ. Maybe they're living like those did 
and Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum who had heard the truth, who knew the truth, maybe even intellectually affirmed the truth, but never had become a follower of Jesus. They'd never come to Jesus. And so we pray for their souls right now that they would, be, they would fear the judgment and they would come to Christ. Lord, we need Your grace and peace. We need Your strength to do these things. We trust in You for these things. And so we ask for them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, dear friends, take His yoke upon you and learn from Him, for He is gentle and humble of heart, that you might find in Him rest for your souls. For He has said, I give my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Amen. Amen.